We're going to continue in Luke, and we're going to be talking about the birth. Um, like that, is that too loud for you guys? Because I get loud sometimes. Um, how many watched that and were like, wait a minute, that wasn't a stable? That wasn't the pretty little picture we see, a little stable, some hay, and Jesus all warm and snuggled up in some swaddling clothes, laying in this little wooden manger? You're like, wait a minute, that's not what that showed. Well, today we're going to talk about a few of that stuff, but I want to read first. We're just going to read this story. I know everyone knows it. We've all heard it. But we're in Luke chapter 2. We're going to start right in verse 1. I'm going to read through some things. It said, In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Cunerius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for him in the end. And I believe that those verses and the next few verses to come are probably some of the most well-known verses in Scripture. Um, even people who aren't Christians know these verses. Those, people, those ones that just come in, you know, and come in on a Sunday evening service or they come in for Christmas Eve service, they all know those verses. So these are the most common. And only Luke, actually, and Matthew cover the events of Jesus' birth. That's the only two Gospels. But Luke goes into much more detail than any other book of the Gospel. And he begins by going, and he starts by telling us exactly what was happening, that a census was happening. And the Romans would take a census for two reasons. There was only two reasons they ever took a census. Um, the first one, of course, was for taxation purposes. They wanted to count how many people were in that city so they knew how much money they need to be making. Right? You know how Romans were about their money. Well, the second reason they did a census was for military readiness. And you know the Romans were big on that. They were big on that military might, that military power. So they, that's the two reasons they did census. Now the Jewish people were, of course, were exempt from that military power requirement. So the only reason they would be taking a census of them at the time was because they wanted to know how much they owed them. And so when the time for the census came around, the Jews, they knew this was all about taxation. They knew it, they knew why they had to go there, and it was all about being taxed. And even though it might sound strange to you and I, the Roman Empire would require their Jewish citizens to, um, it's kind of weird, they would require them to go back to their, to their place where they were born. We don't do that today, right? We claim our taxes, whatever county or whatever zip code we live in, you pay school taxes to whatever school. But see, back then the Romans required that you would leave wherever you were living and you had to go back to where you were born to be counted. That was kind of unique. And we don't know why. We just know that that's why, that's the way the Romans required it. They never, we never get explained why they did that. But, and it was also, remember, it was a big deal back then. We read that and we don't think about that too much. It, this was a huge deal. They would travel, you know, we, we, we think about us, we hop in our car and drive somewhere. But these people would have to travel long distances. So most of them didn't live in their hometowns anymore. And they would, they would travel by foot or by camel or by donkey. Trust me, they didn't have a Toyota and a Honda. 
Okay, so they would make these trips, and since Joseph was a descendant of the king of David, king David this meant for him that he had to make about an 80-mile trip. And we're like, it's 80 miles. That's not the other side of Pittsburgh. Oh, babe. Right? Well, from Galilee in the north to Judea and Bethlehem is 82 miles. And today, if you were to take that same trip on, from Nazareth to Bethlehem by car, it's about 97 miles because, you know, roads aren't straight. So it's about 97 miles. Um, so if you were to take that trip today, it says it takes about two hours in the car, right? So we read this story, and that's how we relate, honestly. When we read this story, we don't, we don't stop for a minute and let it wash over us actually what they had to go through to make this trip. And remember, Mary's pregnant. How many women would walk 87 miles in their ninth final month getting ready to give birth? Not many. All right? So... This journey was not so quick for Joseph and Mary. And thanks to the advancement of Google Maps, and I used them, um, I was able to, did anybody ever use Google Maps GPS? You, know, you can choose so you can walk. What's the distance for walk? Well, that's what I did. I love Google Maps. And so according to Google Maps, if Joseph and Mary were to travel that distance, it says they could walk about eight hours a day. All right? So that trip would take them four days. If they can walk eight hours a day, remember, Mary's pregnant. I highly doubt Joseph's like, you're walking eight hours. Right. And a camel, even if she was on the back of a camel or a donkey, it ain't going eight hours. So this trip probably took them five, six, maybe even a week to make this trip. And this trip wasn't fun. They're not walking, you know, some beautiful beachfront property. This is harsh terrain, desert, just just a hard place for people to walk through. So I wanted you to rest on that. But notice, here's some other things that we don't think about. During these things, I've taught this before, when they would make these trips, there were things along the way that could be dangerous. There was always robbers looking to just take advantage of whoever was going through there by themselves. There was wild animals. There was the danger of, you know, no water. There was all kinds of treacherous things for them to make this trip. So when it says that they had to make this trip to Rome, to Bethlehem to be counted, it's not a hop, skip, and a jump. It's not something easy. We have to take that out of our mind before we get into this story. We have to realize this took effort, and it's something that they were required to do. But in verse 6, it says, and while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them at the inn. And how many times have we, how many times have we read that story? How many have heard that word? Over and over, right? I can't even count. And it, it is possible that we can become so familiar with a scripture or with a passage that we actually stop paying attention to what it says. Do you believe that? We can become so familiar... Or we can also, we'll stop considering the implications of what it says. And we'll just read right over again. I know that story. I can, everybody's probably, I can recite the Christmas story without even opening the Bible. But we forget what it's actually saying. For starters, we have to remind ourselves that we're reading about the birth of God's Son. We have to remind ourselves of that. We're reading about the birth of the Son of God. What that means is 
the God that who is over all things, the God that created everything. And we're going to read about him bringing, giving birth to the son. And shockingly also, um, he, allows a, he allows the woman who is carrying his son to come to a city, and instead of having the usual comforts of that day, because they did have some comforts for women who were giving birth back then, but instead of having the comfort of the day, he allowed the woman who was carrying the birth of his son to not have any comforts. Now, I want you to think about this. The God of the universe who absolutely could have made it to where Mary could have been in all comfort that she could possibly have to give birth to the Jesus, allowed her to have nothing during this birth, have no comforts, whatever they had back then. She had, she had none of it. Nothing. Because it says here there was no place for them. And I read that, and I'm really like there was no place for them. And I read that so many times, and I just imagine this for a moment. Let's say you were the owner of a chain of hotels. Some luxury hotels, right? You're the owner, and you own lots of them. They're all over the place. And you're traveling, and you go into one of your hotels, and you're like, hey, I need a room. And they're like, sorry, no room for you. You're the owner of the hotel, right? Wouldn't you be like, wait a minute here. I own this hotel. Matter of fact, I own you. Oh, I need a room. And they're like, no, I'm sorry. There's no place for you in this inn. That's the point I'm trying to get to you guys is God owns everything. Okay, he owns everything. So when it says there was no place for them at the end, do you understand God allowed that to have no place at the end? Because he owns it. He could have easily made it different. But he didn't. And we missed that. We read that. We're like, oh, it's so cute. Sleep in a little warm stable. I mean, it's it, it's really unthinkable. That's, that's the way I thought about it. It's really unthinkable that the God of the universe would allow his son to be brought up, to be born in the midst of the worst, worst conditions you could ever think of. We romanticize the birth of Jesus. We make all these little stables and all these pretty things, and we love to make it pretty. We're like, oh, so cute. We love to romanticize it. Well, today I'm going to take the romance out of it because it wasn't a romantic event. And I want you to understand there is a message in how Jesus was brought to this world. And we skip that message a lot of times. So I think about this ridiculous idea, first off, that, you know, that it just, he allowed this to, to his son to be born into these things, kind of like a hotel owner. And then we read that, the, that once the baby was born, he was laid in a manger. Here's where I want to stop. And again, we like to, we like to, every time we think of a manger, what do we picture? A little wooden thing, right? A little slatted thing, got some hay put in it. I want to show you a slide real quick of two things. That's a manger. That's what he was most likely laid in. It's made of cold, hard stone. It's carved out. It wouldn't be this clean. I mean, this one's been through some years and age. But it would be covered with food debris and animal slaughter and you know everything you could possibly think of. And you're thinking, ooh, I want you. To, that's what I want you to do. I want you to go, ooh. This would not be a comfortable. Would you put your child in this? This would not be a comfortable thing. 
So we have this idea of this wooden manger, and this picture actually shows us what it actually is. Loved ones, it's, it's a feeding trough. That's what it is. It's a feeding trough. It is a carved out piece of stone that was filthy, nasty. We always see the image of Joseph like scrubbing off a little wooden bowl. You ain't cleaning that. All right? You getting the picture how nasty this was? Made of stone, dirty, filthy, cold, not pretty, hard. Can you imagine how hard it is? And then we, let's talk about the manger. Show up, go to the next slide for me. That's the manger. That's the, that's the end. See, here's what we know. We have this idea that the end was uh, this little wooden building where they kept their animals beside their houses or whatever. Wrong. We know from history and from geological study of the city of Bethlehem that most likely every person that had animals had a carved out spot in a cave where they housed their animals. Even so much for that, they would carve out in the side of the rocks. Remember that feeding trough we just saw? They would carve out inside in the cave a spot that they called the manger of the feeding trough so the animals could stick their head in their knee. That is probably where Jesus was laid. In a cold, nasty, dirty, filthy cave laid in a cold piece of stone covered in animal food and slobber and everything else. That's not so romantic, is it? That's not the little warm, cozy stable that we're used to, is it? But there's a message in this. And you know, the terrible conditions in which Jesus was born, I think it's a, I think it's a, for you and I, it's a glimpse. For, for us to understand the purpose for which Jesus came. Jesus didn't come, how many of you this? Jesus didn't come in his first, the first time in his first advent to rule and reign on an ivory throne. He didn't, right? You know, he didn't come to have people at his every beck and call. Ding, 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 don't come serve me. He didn't have that, right? He came to serve, but more than that, I think, I think the circumstances or conditions in which he was born are communicating to us in no uncertain terms that the Messiah came to suffer. That's what his birth is telling us. Mary, God allowed his son to be brought in this world in the worst conditions a child could be brought into. That's a message that's telling us. God is telling us, even at the birth, this child came to suffer. He didn't come to be pampered. He wasn't born in a pampered situation. He came into a difficult situation. And that was on purpose. That's what we forget. That was on purpose. Purposely God did that. So we could see and understand that God was telling us, my son is here to suffer. And I want you to look at how 700 years before Christ was born, the prophet Isaiah, he said this. I think I have it on there. You got it for me, Mike? That's the number. I'll read Isaiah to you. That's the next one. In Isaiah, it says, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, 
and we esteemed him not. So the message, the story of Jesus, is so different than what we try to convey by Hollywoodizing. It's so different. I mean, I think by romancing and romanticizing the birth of Jesus, I think we've devalued the message that comes through. We love to do that, right? We want it to be pretty. We want our, our Savior to be coming to the Lord and everything be pretty and warm and cozy. But God didn't want that. God didn't want us to, Jesus didn't come to be pampered when he came the first time. Jesus came to suffer for us. That's the message of the birth. And see, if, think about it. If, the, if back then if the Pharisees could have picked up on that message, they would have never been, they would have, they would have recognized the Messiah. But see, they were expecting him to come and rule and reign. His birth wasn't romantic. It wasn't, it wasn't warm. It wasn't friendly. It wasn't nice. It wasn't cozy, as we all like to say, right? It was filthy. It was rough. And it was certainly nothing that any of us would ever put our child in. None of us. Loved ones, God's preaching to us before Jesus even started preaching right here. This is a message. This is a message coming through to us. And the message is God knows our suffering. He knows it. That's why he sent his son this way. Because he knows our suffering. And he came to walk in it. He came to share it. And guess what? He ultimately came to bear it. Right? That's, a That's the beauty of the birth. That's where the that's where the real story of Christmas is. That's what the real story of the birth of Jesus is. Yes, I know we like to have pretty images in our head, but we need to understand he was born into complete, utter nothing. And it was on purpose. Verse 8. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And the angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. Sure they were. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you this day in the city of David a Savior is born, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them in heaven, the shepherds said one to another, Let us go to Bethlehem and see this thing that's happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told to them concerning the child. And all who heard it wondered at, the, at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they heard and seen, as it has been told to them. I find it amazing and a little gratifying when I read this passage. And we learn that the first announcement made of the birth was made to shepherds. And let's talk about shepherds for a little bit. And see, the reason I find that gratifying is because the shepherds were considered the outskirt of everything. 
They were the opposite of what everybody wanted to be. They were on this side. They were actually pretty despised. Think about it, because here, a shepherd, for them to do their job on a daily basis, a shepherd couldn't, keep, couldn't do all the ceremonial things that were required in the temple. They, they just couldn't. Their job, they were away from that a lot. So they were constantly considered unclean shepherds. And think about it. They had a sheep or something that was mauled by a wild animal, and it would die. They would have to move that sheep. But what happens when you touch a dead thing in Jewish culture? You're unclean, right? So shepherds were constantly considered just unclean people. They were the opposite of what everybody wanted to be. You know, no people weren't lining up at the job line going, I want to be a shepherd. Nobody, nobody wanted this job. It was, it was a dirty job. It was a filthy job. It was a boring job, actually. Think about it. You're sitting in a field all day long every now and then some crazy animal comes in. But most of the time, you're sitting there looking at sheep. Who raises sheep here? Who raises any animal? Well, you'd have a package, right? Those are a little more interesting. But I mean, if you stand around and watch a flock of sheep all day long, you're going to go nuts. They don't do a lot of stuff. They fall. Yeah, even chickens are entertaining. But sheep don't do much. So these shepherds were, first off, they were the opposite of what everybody wanted. They were the outcasts. They were the outskirts. They were considered always unclean because they, were all, they couldn't get to the temple. They were messing around with dead, dirty things. And that is who God chose to make the first announcement of the birth of his son. Those people. He chose those people. I love that because, you know what, I compare myself more to a shepherd than a Pharisee. I do. And I hope you guys do too. I hope you compare consider yourself a shepherd instead of a Pharisee. Because understanding hmm. but also I love that God chose to make this announcement to the shepherds because I believe and I'm going to show you here I believe that these shepherds really actually have a special relationship. And I'll explain what I mean by that. See, Special not because the angels came to them, but special because of the actual flocks that they took care of. Let me give you guys some history. So we're told that they were near Bethlehem right here and keeping watch over their flocks. But we're told in Scripture, right? You have to understand that every morning and every night, what happened in the temple? Every morning and every night, every single day. They were sacrificing animals, right? Every morning and every... How many animals do you think that was? That's a lot of animals, right? So every morning and every day. So you have to understand that this, this temple was only five miles away from where these shepherds were. They were only five miles away from the temple. And so every morning and every night and every morning and every night in the temple, they're sacrificing spotless lambs. That's a lot of lambs. So in order to keep up with the demand, we know this, that the temple authorities actually raised their own flocks. Didn't think of it, didn't know that, did you? Back in those days, the temple authorities, those who were in charge of the temple, they actually had their own flocks. They raised them to keep up with the demand of all the, the lambs that were needed. And, and we know from what they've unearthed in, in geography and agriculture and other things, that these flocks were raised near Bethlehem. You can see the places where they raised them. So what's interesting, and if you think about what it means, is it is very likely 
that these shepherds, to whom the angel appeared and declared the birth of the Messiah, these are the shepherds that were keeping watch over the flocks that were being raised for the temple. They were, just, they were watching over the lambs and raising up the unblemished lambs for the temple. That basically means that the ones who looked after the unblemished lamb were the very first ones not only to hear, but to go see the unblemished lamb of God who would take away the sin of the world. That's the special relationship they had. God chose these shepherds. God doesn't do anything on accident. He doesn't do anything just because he's doing it. He doesn't go, well, you know what, there's just some shepherds who are hanging out, they look a little rough, let me talk to them. Right? There's a purpose, there's a message in it. God chose the group of shepherds who were raising lambs, the unblemished lamb, to be sacrificed every day in the temple. He chose them to say, let me show you my unblemished lamb who will take away the sin forever. And they would have understood that as being shepherds. And that's a beautiful truth. I mean, that, that's a, you know what? That's amazing, and that does sound like God to me. Doesn't it? I mean, let them be the first ones to see the unblemished lamb. I could go on about that forever, but I don't want to keep everybody too long. Verse 21. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. We talked about circumcision last week when we talked about John. We know that on the eighth day, they would circumcise the child. And we said that they would name the child at that time. But the naming of the child wasn't really a law. It was a tradition that they did at that time. They really did. I mean, we, the, did Mary know Jesus' name before the eighth day? Yeah. I mean, but nobody else did. She didn't announce it. So on the eighth day, that's when they would, his name is Jesus. They would announce it. Okay? So Jesus is presented at the temple. And when the time came for the purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord, and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Other than the naming ceremony that we just talked about, there's three separate ceremonies written in this little scripture right here. Three. Other than, like I said, the naming, the first one we have is the rite of circumcision. That's the first thing it talks about. And we know that when a baby's eight days old, they would bring the child in and he'd be circumcised at that time. And like I said, we talked about that last chapter, so I'm not really going to go too deep into it. But the second ceremony is in verse 22, and it says, And when the time came for the purification according to the law of Moses, they, bought it, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. Now, of course, Scripture doesn't tell us everything related with that. It doesn't tell us what all is required for all of that, the presenting of a child to the Lord. This was something that was required back in the Old Testament. It's actually given to us in the book of Numbers, and that's what I had up there. Put that up for me, Mike. This is what it says to them. Every devoted thing in Israel shall be yours. Everything that opens the womb of all flesh, whether man or beast, which they offer to the Lord, shall be yours. Nevertheless, the firstborn of man you shall redeem, and the firstborn of unclean animals you shall redeem. And the redemption price, at a month old, you shall redeem them, 
You shall fix it five shekels in silver, according to the shekel of the sanctuary, which is 20 gerahs. I just read that there, but everybody's like, you know, that's what this is. <laughs> that's honestly what you're doing. So, so let me explain it. Every firstborn, clean, male, animal, or child, wait a minute, it doesn't say animal or child here. Every first animal must be sacrificed, not child. Made a difference there, didn't it? Yeah. So every firstborn, clean animal, was to be sacrificed to the Lord. Right? That's what it says. It, it, it was given, really cool, it was given to the priest, and they would sacrifice, and any of the meat that was left over from that, that would also go to the priest's family. This was the firstborn clean animal. Now, obviously they were not to sacrifice unclean animals, right? They just, they just didn't do that. They weren't told to sacrifice any unclean animals. Well, let me ask you this. Do you think every lamb born was clean? If I, have a, if I have a whole flock of land, sheep and I, lambs and they're all getting born, is everyone coming out perfectly clean? No. no, right? So what do they do with all these unclean animals? God knew that. God gave them the answer. You have to present it to the Lord and then you buy it back. Same thing with a male child. You present this baby to the Lord. It is a way of kind of saying, and this is kind of where we get our dedication from, although ours is a little less, but you would present this male child to the Lord saying, this is yours. Understanding that it was given to you, but it doesn't belong to you. We have this bad idea, this bad feeling that our children belong to us. Scripture says they do not. They belong to the Lord. And we are charged and responsible with presenting them to the Lord and then raising them according to Scripture. That's what they did. They would take the male child and they would present it to the Lord saying, Lord, this is yours. But then they would buy it back. So for those five silver dollars, you could literally buy it back. So they came to present Jesus at the temple and say, he is yours, Lord. He is yours. And think of this. Mary and Joseph were very poor, right? At this point, they would have to go and buy him back at the temple. And that money would also go to the priest as well. There is a sermon in here. We are going to continue. I am going to talk about this buying back and presenting the Lord. But I want you to understand that all the way back in Numbers, God gave them the, the, the blemished lamb was to be sacrificed. If it was a male child, you would buy it back. If it was an unblemished lamb, you would buy it back. Jesus was presented at the temple to be sacrificed because he was never bought back. We could not buy him back. Did you get the importance of presenting him at the temple? When they presented him at the temple saying, Lord, this is yours, they were presenting him as the sacrificial, unblemished lamb. Because man could not buy him back. So he was presented for sacrifice. And that is, honestly, that is kind of where we get our baby dedication. And I, I think this, and I think that's something we've gotten away from too much. 
is dedicating our children. I, I think a, a lot of places have just pushed that aside because that's Old Testament stuff. But it's not, it has nothing to do with doing some ritual. And it has everything to do with taking our children and telling the Lord, this is yours. And now I'm going to raise him or her that way. So a baby dedication is beautiful. I wish we, I wish we did more of them. I wish every time a child was born, a parent would run to me and say, I want to dedicate him to the Lord. Because you know what else? That also, when we dedicate a child to the Lord in the sanctuary, that also puts the congregation involved in the upbringing of that child. And that's what they did back then. And we've gotten so far away from that. But in verse 24, we have this final ceremony that they had to do. And this ceremony is the one for the mother that had given birth. According to the law of Moses, how many know when a mother gives birth to a baby boy, that they are considered ceremonial unclean for 40 days. 40 days! So if you give birth to a baby boy, they're like, oop, you're dirty, you're unclean for 40 days. 40 days! And that meant, what it really means was, she could not go into the temple to do any of the ceremonies at all, or even participate in any services at the temple. She couldn't go near it, she couldn't go in it for 40 days. That's what unclean essentially meant back then, okay? And at the end of 40 days, she would come to the temple, and she would offer a sacrifice to the Lord, and after that period, they would determine her clean. And then she'd be able to go back in and enter some temple services and do some stuff. That's essentially what it was, okay? What's interesting is the, the requirement God actually gave for a woman who gave birth to a baby boy was to come to the temple and bring a year-old lamb and a pigeon. And these were actually two different kinds of separate offerings that would happen at the same time. However, some people now, at this time, being very poor, right? There was many poor people, could not afford a lamb. Interesting, right? They couldn't afford the lamb. See where I'm going with So a lot of people were poor, and they, they couldn't afford the lamb. So the law made an allowance. It said that a woman could substitute the lamb with a second pigeon or just bring two turtle doves. The law, they changed it to suit the community of those who were poor. But God's command was you will bring a lamb and a pigeon. But we know they couldn't afford the lamb. So we made allowances. Now, in fact, the offering of the two birds instead of the bird and the lamb, we, they referred to that as the offering of the poor. Because that's what it was. It was the offering of the poor. They couldn't buy a lamb. They couldn't afford it. But here's what's amazing. That is what Mary offered. She offered the offering of the poor. The mother of the Son of God goes to the temple and can't afford a lamb. That was on purpose. And also, just keep in mind, this was way before the Magi ever met up with him. Way before the Magi. Because we have this again, our little Christmas scenes, we always have the Magi on some camels sitting there. You know, right? <laughs> Wrong. Right? The Magi didn't get to Jesus until he was about three, maybe going into four years old. So he was a little toddler running around by this time. Now, they did bring up some resources at that time, but right now, this was only 40 days after Jesus was born, 
they were poor and they couldn't buy anything. So they had to give the offering of the poor. But all of this happened 40 days after his birth. And it makes me wonder again. I'm like, the Son of God is being brought into How could you not see the message? If God wanted his son to be born on a throne, he'd have been born on a throne. Right? God owns everything. They wouldn't be able to say there's no room in the end. They'd be like, oh, yeah, God, you're the owner. Bring him on in. And then God puts him in a cold stone cave, in a cold stone manger. And then when they go to the temple to present the Son of God, he's like, you're gonna, you can't even afford the lamb that you're required to buy. Because we can't afford the lamb. That's what he was saying. We could not pay for that sacrifice. We could not do it. That was the message there. But it goes on. I have to digress. Verse 25. Now there was, I love this part. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came into the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, I will stop right there. How many people in here are parents? I remember raising a child. If you were walking to a temple and some crusty old man come running up and grabbed your child, what would you do? <laughs> right? So that's, that, that, that's my thinking when I was reading that. But anyways, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples. A light for, for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to all people of Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. By the way, do you notice how much detail Luke is giving here? He doesn't give the, nobody else gives this much detail. The, and this much information he has about these intimate things, I want you to think about this. He has so much information about intimate things going on right now that can only really come from like a personal standpoint. So what we believe in studying is we believe when Luke was doing his investigation for the book for his gospel, he actually sat down and interviewed and spoke with Mary. It's the only way he would know these intimate things. It's the only way he would know that she, he would never know that she pondered them in her heart unless Mary told him she pondered them in her heart. So as we studied this, we, we've come to realize Luke, who we know was a doctor, and he was always very investigative of everything he did, and he wanted to show that this was truth. So we believe he probably interviewed Mary. So anyways, Luke is now giving us what is called the third psalm. You guys remember the other two psalms we read in the beginning of this? The first psalm was what? Mary's psalm, right? That was called the Benedictus. I'm sorry, that Mary's is the Magnificent. And then we have a second psalm, the Song of Zechariah, and that was called the Benedictus. And now we come to another psalm that was uttered 40 days after the birth of Jesus by Simeon, a man that we really know nothing about other than what's said right here. That's all we know about him, right? 
We know, I mean, I mean, we know he was a righteous and a devout man, and we know that he was, you know, waiting for the consolation of Israel, but that's pretty much all we know. We know the Holy Spirit had came to him and told him, you would not die until you see my Messiah. And that's all the information we have. But this song was uttered 40 days after the birth, and it's, it says when Mary and Joseph arrived and began to do for Jesus, that Simeon knew this baby. This one baby. He walked over and took the baby. Okay, stop here for a moment. How many dedications do you think presentations happened in the day of the temple? A lot, right? So there's always parents coming in and out with children all day long, just bringing kids and dedicating and presenting them to the temple. How did Simeon go, that's him, in the middle of all that? Because the Holy Spirit had filled him, and it had told him he would see the Messiah. And when the Messiah walked in, the Holy Spirit filled him, and he knew instantly that was the Son of God. And that's where this old man runs up to them and grabs the baby and presents him to the Lord. Blessing God, I have seen your Messiah. Isn't that amazing? And all of these people, all of these children, when, when, that, when Mary and Joseph come walking, and I'm sure they weren't just walking through the temple all by the lonesome, they were in a crowd, because we know from history, this place was always crowded. So they're walking through, and Simeon, old man as he is, comes running, that's Jesus, and he grabs him. That's amazing. It's amazing. church. And this happens all the time. i got to bring this story up. This is why mothers don't like to bring their new babies to church. Because what happens? Somebody runs up and grabs the baby. Oh, look, 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 you look. And they walk away with it. And they're showing the mother's like, what are you doing? So keep that in mind. When you think Mary and Joseph, a brand new baby, plus they knew who this child was. Right? They knew they were, this was the son of God. And they're walking through the temple, and some man runs up and grabs them. Can you imagine what was going through her mind at that moment? But luckily, when he grabs him, he blesses the Lord instantly. And he begins, but what I was getting at is he begins to speak some powerful words over this child. A man who is so connected to God in a special way. He's so, think about it, Simeon is so connected to God that God actually communicated to him, you will not die until you see my salvation. Wouldn't that be a mess? Wouldn't that be a great message? I think that would be a blessing and maybe not so good. Some of us, you know, we, get, we want to go home. We want to be with Jesus, right? But he says, no, I got, some, I got some plans for you. But he was so connected to God that he was communicated that he would see the Messiah. And, and I think about guys like Simeon. I mean, who was so connected, who was so tuned in to the Holy Spirit. Isn't that what we want? I mean, I just think that you know, there's so many mothers that were coming through there and to be so connected with the Holy Spirit and with God that he just reveals to you instantly, there's my son. Well, wouldn't that, isn't that amazing? Wouldn't that, isn't that what you want in your life? Don't you want to be so connected to God that he, he just tells you, this is it. You're, you're on the right path. Well done, my child. Keep going. And we wonder, well, Simeon was a special guy, you know. He had a special connection. He worked in the temple. He was just a normal guy who was righteous and devoted, like devout. 
Jesus. He just, everything about him, everything he did was focused on God. We're going to read another one here in about two seconds, and then I'll wrap up so you can eat. Because I know everybody's like, I might smell food back there. So, think about this. Someone who has a closeness to the point where they're prompted by the Holy Spirit to say, that is my son. Go look, Simeon. Go look. There's what I promised you. It's right there. Go look at it. Go pick it up. I want to be that connected to God. To where I, he tells me, that's it right there. Go get it. But we get so many things in our way. We allow other things to block us away from God. And then we wonder why I don't know what he wants with my life. Because we've got to clear those, we've got to get that garbage out of the way. And we'll talk about that later. <laughs> but I want to keep going. In verse 14, the friendship of, this is the song, the friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him. Oh, actually, no, I, I'm going, that's my verse. I skipped my bad, sorry. I want to read this passage out of the Psalms real quick before we continue. You have that, Mike, do you have that one? The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him, and he makes known to them his covenant. That's exactly what Silver just talking about with Simeon. That's why I wanted to read that. Read that again. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him, and he makes known to them his covenant. He's saying, focus on me, everything on me, and I will make known to you my covenant, my promises, my will. I will make it known to you. This also can answer the question I get people all the time that says, well, what about the people who never read the Bible? Okay, great, but that's not my responsibility. What the responsibility is for them to be to fear the Lord, and then he will reveal it to them. I've met, you've seen it. We've met countries that don't have a piece of scripture, but they know the Lord. And they know him just as well as we do. Because they fear him in a godly fear, and he reveals the co his covenant, his promises to them. That's what I love. That's what Simeon, that was the whole point about Simeon. That's why the Holy Spirit could reveal this to him. Because Simeon loved and feared God. And he did everything devout and right. Now, I'm not saying he's perfect. He wasn't. Nobody was perfect. But everything he did was for God. And I want that in my life. I do. And I, I'm not perfect either. Far from it. But verse 34, Luke. And Simeon blessed him and said to his mother, this is, the, this is the beautiful song. Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. That, that just means, you know what that means in translation when you actually translate that? The part at the end that says sign that is opposed. You translate that, that means a target that people will shoot at. That's what it translates to in English. A target that people will shoot at. That's what he's destined for. Basically what he's saying, what Jesus is destined for, he's going to be a target that people will shoot at. And I'll tell you this, not only is, a man, he is, is he a man of sorrows, familiar with our suffering and coming to this world suffering, but he's also going to be a target that people will shoot at. How many would agree that even today, Jesus Christ remains the number one target that people shoot at? If you don't think so, watch TV for 10 minutes. He is the number one target. But it was told at his birth 
by a man who loved the Lord and was connected to the Holy Spirit, he uttered the words that he will be a target. And he still is today. And then Simeon went on in verse 35, and a sword will pierce your own soul also, so the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Simeon reveals here, Mary being the mother of the Messiah, that this is going to be a painful motherhood. He just told her, your son will be a target, and so will you. So will you. Because you have bore this child, you are also a target. And a, a, it will pierce your soul in pain you can't imagine. So how would you like to give birth to a child and somebody walks into you and says, this child belongs to the Lord, and this is going to be the most painful, gut-wrenching, heartbreaking pain you're ever going to fear from giving birth to this child. That's what he's saying to her. Mary is how old? About 15, 16. Can you imagine that? Do we have anybody in here around that age? Can you imagine being told that? Yeah, yeah. You're a little younger than that, right? You know what? But we also know, so we know Mary was present at the crucifixion, right? She was there. Well, we know that because Scripture tells us she was there. Jesus actually spoke to her from the cross. And I cannot even begin to imagine the pain of that. And then finally, we're going to read about a woman named Anna. And we're going to close on that. And this is in verse, 20, verse 36. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanel, from the tribe of Asher. They say all that. Asher really wasn't anything of a tribe, just to let you know. So, you're like, wait a minute. Asher was nothing. They were a tribe of Asher. They didn't mean anything. They had no significance. They weren't important. They were just people. There's a message in that. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin. And then, as a widow, until, until she was 84, she did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and speak to him speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. I think about Anna, and this is another interesting individual. We're told that she lost her husband just after seven years of marriage, right? And she was obviously a very young woman back then because they got married very young. Usually at that time, you know, the girls were married 14, 15 years old. But instead of becoming bitter, Instead of becoming bitter, she devoted herself to the Lord. We read that like, that's cool. That's not easy. That's not easy. How many single women do we have? Don't, don't raise your hand. I'm going to make that clear. How many single women right now battle every single day trying to be devoted to the Lord? This woman was young. She became married. She obviously was, had a great husband. And he died seven years after being married. She had every right to become a bitter, withered up person. But she devoted herself to the Lord. Hmm. Now this doesn't mean also, because we have this idea that she kind of lived there, that does not mean she lived in the temple. Okay? 
okay? Um, it just means that every time something was in the temple, every service, she was there night and day. And even as an elderly woman, she never, that, that little spot tells us she never lost hope in the promise of God. Never. Think about it. She was probably really, she said she was young when her husband died. She's now 85 years old. And not once did she give up or falter the promise of God. She kept focused on it all of that time. And we're told that was her heart in verse 38. Then at the sight of Jesus, she began to give thanks to God. She looked at Jesus and just gave thanks to the Lord. Keep in mind, this happened at the same time. Simeon comes out and says, oh, Jesus, big Messiah. Oh, Lord, Lord, Lord. And then Anna, at the sight of Jesus, just starts, in a crowd, just starts praising God for what he's done and making it known to everyone. I just like, she was just bursting with praise. I mean, at the sight of Jesus. Do you get at the sight of Jesus, she was bursting with praise. How many of us need to see Jesus again and have praise? We can praise. We get so wrapped up in reading everything and some ceremony and some habit of coming to church, we forget to look at Jesus. We forget to focus on God. We forget to devote ourselves to God. You want to know the will for your life? You want to have blessing? You want to have praise? You want to have joy? Focus on Jesus. That's what it's telling us. The entire birth is a story telling us, focus on my son. Everything else will be given to you. Now, I'm not saying that everything is rainbows and butterflies, because absolutely it's not. But what I am saying is, when we're not in the rainbows and butterflies, and when we're in the trenches and the guts, and then we're down in the filth and the mud, God still says the same thing. Keep your eye on my son. Amen. That's the message of birth. And then Luke, we're going to end on this. And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned unto Galilee. Worship team, you guys can be ready. To the town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom. And the favor of God was upon him. As I read this, as I read this birth story, like I said, this whole thing we've been talking about in Luke, my, my goal was not to give us the typical Christmas story. Because there's a message in this. And I wanted us to sit down. And we've learned, just in these couple short chapters, we've learned God told us in the birth of John, in the birth of Jesus, he told us our prayers never expire. Never. Ever. He's told us I will complete all my promises. Right? And then last week, we see Zechariah, who after nine, ten months couldn't speak. A man. A man. Couldn't speak for nine or ten months. That would be a lot, I want to say. Instead of saying everything out of bitterness of his heart, he opened his mouth and praised God. And then today, in this little part of this message, God's telling us, no matter where you are, no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, think of Zechariah. He was unbelieving. God took somebody who unbelieved and used him to prophesy one of the greatest prophecies of his son. God's saying, no matter, no matter all of this, all of this, focus on my son. Amen. 
Focus on him. Focus on the true message, not a Hollywood message. Focus on the truth that Jesus came to suffer for us because we couldn't afford the lamb. And with that, I'm going to close on that. We're going to pray. Father, God, we come humbly before you, Lord. Father, we're so thankful for the messages in your word, Lord, and I, I ask that as we go through this, this holiday season, there are many people during this season who actually have never even come to you, but now they're looking for you, Lord. I ask that, that we have the strength and the boldness to, to bring them to your word, Lord, and to preach Christ to them, and, and that we ourselves focus on your Son. Because, Lord, I think so many times we get focused on so many other things that we lose sight of Jesus. And we need to be reminded. I like to say we need to go back to basics. We need to be, we need to be holding your word, being devout and righteous to you, Lord, and just focus on your Son. And Lord, I ask for blessings on everyone here today. As they go through this difficult holiday season, I ask that you strengthen them. I ask that you protect them. I ask that your hands be upon them. I ask that family members come together, Lord, that lives are saved and people are touched. Lord, I ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.